Snowman Podcast. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. I'm your host as always, the Snowman. Well, folks, you're in for a real treat today. In this episode, you'll get to hear my interview with my good friend John Birch. We've known each other for over 10 years now and have spent countless hours drinking coffee and all sorts of different topics. From movies and television shows, to history, to current events, to all different types of literature, but always, always returning to the Bible and the teachings of Christ. His passion is discipleship to guide and teach others in the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. He is the author of several books, including a commentary on Revelation, which we will discuss in the upcoming episode. He loves the Lord with all his heart and is happily married to his wife, Joyce. Some of the other topics we discuss in the episode include the current turmoil in Ukraine, and he gives insight into the matter and its correlation to Israel, along with the rest of the world, in a way that probably you've never heard before. And we also will discuss the upcoming Amazon series, The Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, and the travesty that we have so far seen out of one minute of film, and that is enough to turn off a lot of Tolkien fans, and why Tolkien is so respected in the fantasy realm. So, lots of ground covered today, and I hope you enjoy it. It is a little longer than some of my other episodes. But I do think you will enjoy it. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, may I present John Birch. All right, so thanks for coming on to the show. For those who may not know you, would you mind sharing with the audience what you do? Uh, I am a discipleship pastor, and I mostly teach Bible studies, lead classes, and that's in different churches, interdenominationally. Did a house church for about 10 years, um, but primarily it's discipleship. Uh, individually, small groups, or like I said, classes within churches or even people's homes, or just getting together in public places. Uh, really, that's what it's all about. Nice. So, how long have you been doing that? I mean, 25 years. 25 plus. years. Wow. Yeah. Doesn't seem like it's been that long That's sometimes. What, it doesn't feel like it's been <laughs> that long, you know, until you start seeing some of the kids that you ministered to years ago and now they have their own kids. Yeah. Then you're like, <laughs> What have I done <laughs> sometimes? Yeah, it's uh it, it's a mortality check. So with all that being said, you said that you've been a discipleship pastor in uh, different churches. How involved are you in the community? Like do you do it in just one area, or do you do it in other locations also? Uh, anywhere, really. I don't. I mean, I live in Seaford, Delaware, but I've been active in Seaford, Laurel, Salisbury, Maryland, um, even up as far as Dover, Delaware. It just depends on where the spirit leads and whatever church I might be active in uh, around the peninsula. Usually, it is within Sussex County or Wacomico County. But that's based on networking. And so sometimes it's, you know, I'm asked to go to a church and lead a Bible study there based on a certain interest, whether it's from the pastor, other leadership, or someone that attends the church. Uh, Other times it's just 
some people that aren't even in church that just have an interest in meeting like men's groups, etc. And then from out of that comes a specific type of study and then fellowship develops around that. And it's just, it's kind of an organic aspect. It develops here and there. And I go through seasons where it's, you know, in a church here and in a church there. And then it's a small group meeting in a public place here. And then maybe in my home and then someone else's home. It's just all wherever the Spirit leads. Kind of like Jesus said, you know, that you never know where the Spirit's going to come from and where it's going to lead. Yeah. Um, would you be interested in doing more or do you just, as you more or less just said, let the spirit lead or how yeah, does that go about? I pretty much let the spirit lead. Um, you know, I'm attending a church right now, uh, and have been for a little over a year regularly, but, uh, you know, then there's other interests that are kind of on the horizon and I don't know if I'll start attending another church or at least get involved in another church or two. And that's just how it's been for 20-some years. Yeah. You know, even during doing the home church, at times I was reaching into other churches. Um, even my home church, where I actually grew up, a small Methodist church in Delaware, I would still, and to this day, I'm still leading a theology class there. So it's, again, it's, I don't try to premeditate stuff. I just see where the Lord leads, and based on relational connections with people, you know, things just kind of develop. And it's, I don't try to control it. I just kind of pray about my availability, and again, you know, I know my limits, so I don't try to do too much, and sometimes I have to say no, yeah, because a certain season needs to come to an end before mm-hmm. another opportunity uh, should be taken advantage of. Yeah. yeah. So I know that I know some of those courses you've taught, you've predominantly taught on Revelation, and that's a, something that a lot of people are trepidatious about. They're like... They don't want to get into it, but then something clicks and they're like, I got to read up on that. Mm-hmm. And that's where, in a way, you step in and you're like, I can help you guide through that, uh, through those passages and everything. Yes, yes. I um, it, Going all the way back to the mid-90s is when I knew, based on you know the early years of my discipleship, that the Lord was really giving me a heart for prophecy, Bible prophecy. And that doesn't just mean end times, like the book of Revelation, you know, last days eschatology. Um, Prophecy is the entire word of God. And most of the time when people hear the word prophecy, you know, they either get excited, you know, because of end times stuff, which is great. But then, you know, others get kind of like, ah, a little put off by it because there's, you know, so many different views on Bible prophecy and, it's confusing if you're not really drawn into it to study it, and then there's so many books on it. Uh, but prophecy is really teaching the Word of God, and even our salvation is prophetic because, you know, as Jesus said to for the Great Commission to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's prophetic. And every time someone gets saved, it's an aspect of the prophetic Word of God being fulfilled. And so... Prophecy does encompass the entire Word of God. So anyway, I started really early on teaching the Word of God, the great doctrines of the Bible, um, what does it mean to be saved, what is discipleship, like fully defined, which is really a life lived out. Discipleship isn't just a Bible study. You know, what are spiritual gifts? You know, how do they all differ? Some people think their spiritual gift is church attendance. (laughs) And that's just not true. That's just not right. It's not a gift at all. And the difference is, are we faithful to church attendance? Are we faithful to a particular group of people? Or are we faithful to Jesus Christ first? 
And that's where discipleship comes into play. So really, in the lens and the context of discipleship, the Lord began to give me a passion for prophecy. And yes, end times prophecy. And after a season of reading the prophetic books in the Old Testament, the Lord had me jump to Revelation. And I really found that I could understand Revelation much more readily than expected because it's rooted in the Old Testament. The language of Revelation that throws most people off, the symbolism, the cryptic, arcane type of language, and you know the phrases used, it's right out of the Old Testament. And that's the key to understanding Revelation, is knowing the Old Testament, particularly the prophetic books. And then, you know, explicitly the book of Daniel, book of Zechariah, book of Joel, uh, a lot of the Psalms, they show up in Revelation. Of the 404 verses in Revelation, it's like 85% are uh, the verses are out of the Old Testament. Really? At least references. Wow. Not necessarily verbatim. Right. But the themes... Uh, references, a lot of the actual items that show up, like lampstands and stuff, a lot of that is you know, referenced in, in the Old Testament. And if you look closely enough, some of it's even referenced in the Gospels. Absolutely. Yeah. And you see it and you're like, oh, well, let me put two and two together and be like, holy cow, what's going on? Yeah. Like probably the, the virgin birth is mentioned in the book of Revelation, and you know that happened with Mary mm-hmm. giving birth to Jesus. Yes. That That's just one of those like interesting moments, more or less. Yeah, there, there's a lot of... Uh, all the symbolism also that's in the book of Revelation is also what kind of intimidates a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Because how in the world can we interpret it? How do we know what the right interpretation right. is? Well, Scripture interprets Scripture. And the symbols in the book of Revelation are not up for grabs. So the key is, well, how do you figure out what the right interpretation is? Well, you can read 100 different books on the book of Revelation, commentaries, etc., and have 100 different interpretations. Yep. What is the biblical view? Mm-hmm. You're going to find the answers to the book of Revelation elsewhere in Scripture. Yeah. You really don't need an absolution, a commentary, or someone else's work outside the Bible to actually be able to interpret the book of Revelation. Now, that also doesn't mean that we'll know every last little detail of Revelation. There's still mystery to it. But there's a lot of mystery in the book of Revelation that has actually been revealed. That's the whole point of the book of Revelation is to reveal. So it just comes down to having a relationship with God by the Holy Spirit, who himself leads us into all truth as we read his word. But we're supposed to, as according to Scripture, we're commanded to understand and know the whole counsel of God, not just a few verses here and there that we grab onto as our life verses and we're to know the context of those verses the context of the particular book or letter in the bible and then the context of the testament that it's found in and then the context of the time and history in which we live or the culture and the time and history in which that particular book of the bible or letter was written so there's a lot of different nuances to understanding scripture and knowing the interpretation and receiving that interpretation from god commentaries, other resources, all help us out for sure, but we can't just rely on those. And that's speaking from your perspective of having written a commentary on Revelation. Yes, yes. I would never want to give someone my commentary and say, here you go, I have all the answers, thank you very much. I certainly don't. And my commentary is designed to be read along with the book of Revelation, and it's full of scripture from all over the Bible so that 
when you're reading my comments or my commentary on the book of Revelation and other aspects of Scripture, you can see where I'm getting certain ideas. So it's not just take John Birch's opinion mm-hmm. or speculation or even just commentary as absolute truth. You'll see where I got certain ideas. And I'm yeah. very careful to say that when something is speculation or just an idea or a perhaps or a what if or things could unfold this way perhaps, I'm very careful to say that. Yeah. Because I would never want to dictate to someone and then fall into false teaching. Right. So, and that's very important, yes. and especially because in the book of Revelation, it's mentioned, like, you Abs- don't want to be a false teacher. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, good commentaries and good books that are about the Bible actually point people back to the Bible and encourage people to get in there. Because that's how we encounter God initially, is through His Word. And all the resources that are out there are great. We just don't want to replace the Holy Spirit with these resources. And the Christian, you know, book and resource industry in the West is tremendous. So it's very easy to replace the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah. And not rely on Him. Because we just fill our head with information from pastors, teachers, books, you know, all kinds of things. Videos. And smiles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we just kind of fall into, oh my gosh, there's so many views and viewpoints and all this. But the best thing to do is actually get into the Word. And then let the resources be supplements. Yeah. Because then they inspire, they offer more insight, they provoke our thinking, mm-hmm. they help us to, yes, understand more and, and, and really think through things. But first and foremost, that's what the Holy Spirit's there for. He's the one who leads us into all truth and brings to mind certain aspects. But we have to fill our minds with his truth, which once again is being in communication with him and also being in his word. Right. So with that perspective and everything... Would you mind telling people where they could find your commentary if they have an interest in reading it? Sure. First of all, you could go to my website, which is johnbirch.com, and that's J-O-N-B-I-R-C-H.com. No H in there. And it's right on the landing page. You'll see right at the top, uh, the header, there's just a link to my commentary. Otherwise, you can go to Amazon and pick it up on there. And the best thing to do, because there's so many Revelation commentaries, is to put in my name, John Scott Birch. I just put my middle name in there for my author name. So J-O-N and then Scott Birch, and it it should pop up. And it's a black cover for people who are visually looking for what the the book is. It's a black cover, and there's some red, like, glory cloud on the front (laughs) there. It's it's a very simplistic cover, but the title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ, A Disciple's Commentary. Once again, by John Scott Birch, found on Amazon or johnbirch.com. So... In, in regards to Revelation, um, there's one verse that a lot of people take out of context. And that's in, I think, Revelation 4. A lot of those. Um, where it's, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Oh, that's Revelation 3. Revelation 3. 3 okay. 20, yes. So a lot of people always take that to mean that it's, Jesus knocking on the hearts of unbelievers. Mm-hmm. While that is true, in the context that is written for that part portion of Scripture, he's actually knocking on the door of the church. Yes. Who has more or less, with the world seeping in, have booted him out of the church. Still saying that they're worshiping him, prophesying in his name, healing in his name, and yet he's out on the curb like, let me back in. Mm -hmm. 
why is that verse taken out of context so many times? Well, often because, you know, just like a lot of a lot of individuals or, you know, groups or, uh, it just comes down to personal preference, you know. Um, people don't take the whole picture and keep that in mind when they're picking and choosing certain verses. And the context that you mentioned, that Jesus is knocking on the door of our heart, it certainly works on mm-hmm. one level, on a very basic level. Yes, you know, Jesus is certainly there for each one of us, believer or not, and waiting for us to either receive his salvation and or after receiving his salvation, actually begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and grow in our discipleship and therefore our Christ-likeness and become more like him throughout our life. So he's either wanting us to get saved or he's wanting us to continue to grow in our salvation, work out our salvation, as Paul says, the Apostle Paul. Um, But the specific context for Revelation is Revelation 2 and 3 covers the seven messages from Jesus to seven specific churches. Now, these are in the first century of Christianity. So it's, you know, in the first roughly hundred years of Christianity, you know, after Jesus, you know, had ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and, you know, believers are beginning to expand, you know, all over the the known world at the time throughout the Roman Empire. Um, The messages to each of the churches have something specific, something good, something bad. Jesus is basically encouraging the church to do the things they're doing right. And then he warns them of the things that they're doing wrong and anything that's kind of threatening them from the outside. He's warning them to beware of these things. And then there's a few churches where he doesn't say anything bad at all. Mm -hmm. And that's the ideal church. Now, that would be the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia. But then there's also a church that he doesn't say anything good about. He only has condemnation for that church. And that's the seventh church, the seventh message to the church of Laodicea. That's the one where you find in Revelation 3.20, it says Jesus stands outside the door and knocks. It's Jesus himself actually literally says, behold, I stand outside and knock. And what he's doing is he's knocking on the door of the church. But just before that, he has said to the church that you basically have need of nothing. You consider yourselves spiritually, emotionally, and physically healthy, and you're in need of nothing. Well, Jesus says, I'm here to tell you that you're in need of everything. In particular, you're in need of me. So he's knocking on the door because they're inside carrying on playing church, not being the church. And he's waiting for that one individual because it's an appeal. If anyone should open the door to me, I will come into him and then he will come into me and then we will fellowship together. That's what Jesus is saying because ultimately Jesus' gift of salvation is an appeal to the individual. The church is collective. It's all the believers coming together in fellowship, the bride of Christ. But Jesus' appeal to salvation is individual because no one can walk in our discipleship for us, not even God himself. Mm -hmm. He helps us once we receive him. But in that appeal, he's looking at this church that is just carrying on, playing games, playing with itself, basically. And then maybe there's someone in there that actually says there's something not quite right with this. It's all about the production. It's all about you know, the the programs. It's all about anything but really Christ other than in name. So if someone realizes that, where are they to go? Jesus is still there. So they can come outside of this faulty church, this false church, which the church of Laodicea is. And prophetically, it represents the last day's church. 
Now, that doesn't mean that every last person inside of any traditional church today, denominationally, Orthodox, Christian, you know, a Protestant or Catholic, is in the wrong. There's going to be true believers throughout every denomination. Right. But primarily, the institutionalized churches are really drifting away from first century Christianity mm-hmm. and true discipleship. Now, given in the West, there has been about the last 10 years, 15 years, a revival of discipleship, true discipleship. And, you know, there's this the proliferation of like small groups, cell groups, and that kind of thing. And that's great. But the key is, are they really discipleship groups? Right. Or are they just fellowship groups? Yeah. So Jesus is still appealing to that individual who says, man, there's got to be more than just being faithful to a group, mm-hmm. small or large, or being faithful to an institution, or being faithful to uh, a denomination. We've got to be faithful to him. So even in the last days... Jesus is still appealing to anyone who is just tired of everything else not being fulfilling. And that's kind of where we say, well, gosh, you know, am I really faithful to Jesus? Am I really following Jesus? Or have I just become a part of a club? And, you know, it really comes down to summing it all up by saying, if you look at first century church discipleship, what you get is following and then obeying, and then imitating Jesus Christ. 21st century discipleship is generally joining, submitting to, giving, volunteering to a church and has less to do about Jesus except in name only. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I'm not trying to knock traditional church because God certainly moves through traditional church. Mm-hmm. But when the institution becomes a distraction, right. when it becomes more about building up a church, establishing a temple, than it does about following Jesus wherever he would lead us, which is all about relationships, you know, then, there's, then there's a problem. Because the church isn't a building. The church is the exactly. congregation, so to speak. Right. It's like we are the church. Right. It's not where we go. It's not what we do. We are being the church the bride of Christ. And a lot of times, you know, people kind of unintentionally, I get it, they're conditioned in the West. We grow up, we believe that we're supposed to, as good Christians, invite people to church. Yeah. Well, if you want to invite someone that's not really going to church or hasn't been to church in a while, why would you invite them to church to hear someone they don't even know when you should be more than capable relationally mm-hmm. to sit down with them in a coffee shop or at their home or wherever and actually talk to them and answer their questions and evangelize them because Christianity is about relationship. Yeah. It's not about just joining a church and then kind of if you have the audacity to invite someone to church and then you think getting them in the doors you've done your duty. That's that's a false perception because it really comes down to why would that person not want to sit and listen to you share the gospel yeah. and understand what Christianity is all about? And then be much more comfortable, hopefully, because of the relational connection to you, to ask questions and talk. Whereas if they go into this situation where there's a bunch of people they don't even know, that becomes itself a distraction or even a stumbling block. Mm-hmm. And most people just aren't going to go and jump into a new, brand new situation, just, just the way the culture is today. Right. You know, not to say that never works and not to say that inviting people to church is a bad thing, but it's just why go through that rigmarole, especially if there's resistance, when you could actually sit down with someone in the workplace or in your family, 
you know, home or wherever and just meet with someone and meet them where they're at. It's not, you know, Christianity is not about going to church somewhere. Mm-hmm. Some people will bring up the Hebrews passage, you know, forsake not the gathering together of yourselves, as some people, the heathen, tend to do. That doesn't have anything to do with attending church somewhere. That actually means having Christian fellowship with people. I mean, when Jesus was walking around with the disciples, they weren't attending synagogue all the time. <laughs> they weren't attending traditional churches. We know it because it didn't exist. They met in public places. They met in homes. Even after, you know, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit fell, it said, and of course, if you read Acts 2, you know, verse 42 to 47, it talks about the believers were meeting together in public places and in homes, praying for each other, giving as each other had need, um, tending to the orphans and the widows and just following the apostles' doctrine. And, and I mean, it was all about relationship. And right, but their simple, doctrine was based on what Jesus had taught them directly. Right, that's, so. the doctrine simply means the teachings of right. Jesus. Yeah, And then via the Holy Spirit, being able to be in solidarity with each other, being able to discern truth. And when there was false teaching, the Holy Spirit could very quickly rise up and warn people of that very truth. Yeah. That's all, Jesus gets into a lot of that in the seven messages to the churches in Revelation. Hmm. So a lot of the gospel, as you said, does show up in yeah. the first you know, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. It's yeah. just a, a very simplistic discipleship paradigm that Jesus lays out. And it's very, very brief, but there's so much that he says in mm-hmm. so few verses. It's and very powerful. Th- that's a lot of times throughout the Bible. Like one verse can... You can be on a study for a year yeah. sometimes. It's a living word. Yep. <laughs> That's it. So something that the two of us have talked extensively since we heard it was going to happen, and that is Amazon's production of The Lord of the Rings as a TV series. We were, we've both been voicing our concerns to just between us and friends of... We don't want to see it go woke, for lack of a better expression. We don't want to see politics seep into it and destroy the realm of Middle-earth as Tolkien created it, which had no politics at all in it. And yet, with the trailer that aired during the Super Bowl, all we see is political agenda. And we've sent each other different articles or different videos about it and they have met nothing but scathing reviews from the fans and from all walks of life all they want is tolkien's works to be portrayed properly but the fans the the fans the true fans want tolkien's work portrayed faithfully to his writings but something you said to me was interesting you said that the producers attempt to make it woke for everybody in the current age because that's more or less what they said. We're making it for what's happening under the world today. You said that was an attack on Tolkien's faith himself. So would you mind explaining that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really not complicated. Um, it's still maybe too early to tell because there could be adjustments made and things could change for the better in the next several months and leading up to the release of this program. Um, If there are no changes made, you know, I mean, who am I? But I'm not interested. And a lot of fans are also not going to be interested. Right. Because Tolkien is someone who's cherished and favored by, I mean, so many people. And yes, the movies 20 years ago made Tolkien even more relevant 
for newer, younger generations. They made him like a household name. Yeah. And, you know, some people discovering the movies have discovered the books and the other literature beyond Middle Earth that Tolkien was involved with. And that's awesome. It's, it's great that that's happened. And just to study Tolkien and understand who he was and what he was about is very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, not just reading his works, but a lot of the works about him. But his son, Christopher, did so much to publish posthumously from his father, so much that Tolkien could have published. But The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings took so much of his time, not to mention, you know, Tolkien was a professor of philology <laughs> and involved in so many different things. But concerning the film and the producers of this, uh, or these new films, these new programs, the producers have really disrespected yeah. Tolkien's work. And it's clearly by design. It's just a lack of respect for Tolkien the man, for his works, to just... The political agenda today is just to redefine anything. Yeah. Uh, even if it's not in and of itself sinister or racist or anything. And Tol- Tolkien's works are not anything that is out of the ordinary they're phenomenal works in of themselves the hobbit and the lord of the rings in particular but his work has specifically now through these producers manifest obviously in message boards websites now mm-hmm. since these trailers have come out his work is being attacked and his faith is being denigrated and even though people might not come right out and attack Tolkien's faith, Christian faith, his Roman Catholic faith. His work is not overtly Christian, like, say, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Right. The Lord of the Rings is not an allegory, but it is a very Christian work because the ideas of free will and morality and one God and angels, supernatural. And, of course, not, not a lot of people know, but Middle Earth is the deep history, as Tolkien would have it, of our Earth, mm-hmm. the deep history and the mythology of our own planet, way before Christ. But those very morals of free will and morality and one God and faithfulness and good versus evil, that's what's being attacked. Yeah. And it's a subtle attack in the name of racism or wokeness or you know equality, etc., and those are just the catchphrases of today people throw out to try to shut people up and shut people down. Right. The cancel culture. But I'm not interested. Right. A lot of people aren't going to be interested. And I believe if their course doesn't correct and the producers don't change things to better su- preserve the integrity of Tolkien's work, and I kind of doubt that they will. Right. But if they don't, I believe it's really going to backfire and Amazon's going to lose a lot of money. Not that they really care. Right. But they'll lose a lot of money because I believe Tolkien fans are very loyal and they will boycott this thing. Yeah. And they will be very vocal about it. Not violent or anything crazy. I know. I'd be, be I've been excited that Amazon was going to do it. A lot of people for, have for been for years. Three years. Yeah. But since they bought the rights. And yes. they, they paid a billion dollars yeah. for these rights. I believe I, Tolkien Estate just could not resist that amount. Yeah. And they were probably assured that... The work would be preserved. The integrity yep. would be respected, despite the fact that, just like with the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings movies, there's always room for 
artistic license right. and creativity because you're going from one medium to another, from literature to film. And mm-hmm. you, things do necessarily get lost in translation. But to reinterpret things right. to the level that has been just, done just, here, In just a minute and 15 second trailer. Right. It's an injustice to Tolkien himself and his work and his legacy. And so many people worldwide recognize that. Right. And so... And you may know this better than I do. Is this quote authentic to Peter Jackson where he said, we were not going to put our own politics into his trilogy, Lord of the Rings, made 20 years ago? Hard to believe that's been 20 years since Mm -hmm. they came out. But when they made them, they were like, we're not putting our politics. We're keeping it authentic to Tolkien's works. And that's why they have thrived. Everyone loves that trilogy because he did such a good job with it. Did Jackson actually say that? I mean, I don't know. I couldn't answer that, although I do know that Jackson himself has said in numerous interviews that he was a fan. He is a fan of Tolkien and his works, in particular The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. So his goal as a fan was to preserve Tolkien's work and to provide, yes, his interpretation of things as faithful as he could to the works despite the change in medium from literature to the screen. Right. That's a hard sell. And he had a monumental task and he succeeded. More so with Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, I believe, but he still did a well enough job with The Hobbit that a lot of people still enjoy the films. Mm Mm-hmm. But he was a true fan putting out his interpretation. He had the resources to do it. And I think kudos to him yeah. and his whole team for yeah. doing that. I yeah. mean, for what a workshop. Everybody involved. The writers, the uh, all the producers, the crew. Yeah, everybody I mean, involved. Every, everything, the music. And nobody, no fan is even going to be perfect to honor Tolkien's work. And right. Tolkien himself might have had a problem with it being translated to film. Right. And that's okay. But... To completely reinterpret the heart of what Tolkien has done. Yeah. It, it would just be like taking something of Shakespeare's and just completely twisting it around to the point where it's not even Shakespeare. Why do that? And, I mean, creating new characters to deliberately fit their agenda. Yeah. It's like, what? Sometimes we understand changes, you know, for the sake, even just to be different. But is it artistic or is it some kind of attack? And in this case, I do believe, and you know, many people probably disagree with me, not even think it's about this at all. But Tolkien was a Christian, and that spirit of Antichrist that is alive and well today is going after anything that smacks of godliness, morality, especially morality, and morality to a moral lawgiver. Mm-hmm. So that would speak of God. So anything that's like that is going to try to be denigrated and attacked and diminished and if they can make money off of it yeah that's a dirty rotten shame when people take that and twist it so as you know this podcast is about sharing why america is such a unique country what's your takeaway as to why that is and the opportunities we have Really, America being founded on Christian, I should say Judeo-Christian morals mm-hmm. and principles uh, makes it unique. And we just have begun to drift from that, you know, collectively as a nation. Yeah. And 
it's a sad thing. And uh, just, you know, anybody can watch what's going on, you know, in the world. And and I, I don't mean just watching, you know, one particular media outlet. Doing our due diligence, we are careful in how we are instructed. At least we should be. And we are careful and selective in the things that we read. And we don't just latch on to one thing or one persona, one outlet, one avenue of learning. Um, we should be very well-rounded in how we educate ourselves and the education we get. And, of course, that means being aware of not just two different opposing sides, mm-hmm. but every avenue and angle in between, mm-hmm. every opinion, and you know, and so that we can weigh those things out for ourselves. And... The polarization of, of things, whether it's education, whether it's politics, um, whether it's spirituality, it just creates so much more chaos than is needed. And I know I don't have to offer too much, you know, opinion or commentary. And on this is actually the been, problem that's going on today, right? I mean, how you said it, like we were founded on Judeo-Christian principles. That actually was more or less in effect before we became a nation, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you got to look at the pilgrims um, when they signed the Mayflower Compact and everything. They more or less did try a type of socialism. Yes. And William Bradford was wise enough and saw it was not going to work at all Mm -hmm. and changed it all and said, this is how we're now going to do it and made it so you make a living your farm thrives good for you you're not going to have to give everything else to someone else that you've worked so hard to earn Mm -hmm. and where other settlements failed the plymouth settlement thrived and flourished in ways that had never seen before Mm -hmm. um and then you see a couple like 150 years later you see the turmoil leading up to the revolution and how Jefferson, Washington, Adams all were in like prayer a lot of the time. And that's something that has been lost to history in many ways because no one wants to think that any of our founding fathers were Christians or like, oh, they're Masons or anything like that. And that was the end of that. It's like these guys were God-fearing men and they quoted the Bible in the Declaration of Independence multiple times and said, this is why we're revolting against the King of Great Britain. So that's just, I wish people would understand that more often and not be afraid to like learn that history. Yes. Um, the history of the United States and then going back, of course the roots are coming out of England. Um, it's very rich, and we have to be open-minded, Christian or not, in looking at that history and not be so polarized because even the founding fathers and founding mothers of our nation, they were all flawed individuals. Yep. All of us were. Nobody was perfect, not even George Washington, for those who really tend to idolize him. Um, I, I admire the man and what I read about him in history. Uh, but, you know, like anyone, all of us have flaws, even as Christians. 
and you go back all the way to you know Jewish history. I mean, the greatest patriarchs of Israel, King David in particular, was a flawed individual, and admittedly so, but he was humble about it, mm-hmm. and he didn't put himself out there as if he was God. Right. And, you know, not many Jewish people will try to pass him off as if he was God, mm-hmm. because they know that they have a God that they serve, however imperfectly they serve him, and that's what we need to keep in mind, is that... Our nation, to bring it back to you know America, was founded on perfect principles because they were coming out of Scripture, rooted in Scripture. And you alluded to it, our founding documents in this country, the Constitution, Bill of Rights, and Declaration of Independence, are also rooted in Scripture. Yeah. So the appeals to a higher power, and sometimes, yeah, that comes across as you know generic, but... That was by design, and I think rightfully so, because ultimately they did appeal to the creator, the creator God. Mm -hmm. And not all the founding fathers or mothers were believers in Jesus Christ, but they were all on the same page when it came to allowing for religious freedom. Mm -hmm. And it was freedom of religion, but not a freedom from religion. Right. So anyone is welcome to be here. Mm -hmm. But the constitutional republic that was founded does have limits. Mm-hmm. And that is what's being violated now. Yeah. It is a constitutional republic. It is not a democracy in this country. Yes, there's a democratic aspect to our constitutional republic, but the constitutional republic itself appeals to a higher power, which is scripture, which is the word of the creator God. And that is what has to be appealed to. And the morality of that is where we get the sense of individual rights and proper freedoms for humanity and also morality itself well you look around gosh not just the united states but you know the world today and morality is being thrown out the window oh, yeah. truth is being attacked as being relative mm-hmm. what's true for you in absolute may not be true for me in absolute is kind of how the philosophy goes yeah. and that's just wrong right and then we see the attacks on all the traditional Christian values yep. and morals, and then therefore the Constitution itself, all the founding documents, the revisionist history starts to just run amok because mm-hmm. people don't want to be bound by something that they don't want to be accountable to, be it a government or a founding principle or God himself. And that's part of the problem. Yeah, And it's just this, sad to say, it really is a black and white good versus evil at the root yeah. of all of the problems today that we have. Religiously, philosophically, politically, especially, and right. even personally. I mean, we've seen a lot of turmoil from schools and everything. This goes back to probably the 90s. I don't remember when the Supreme Court more or less said, take the Ten Commandments off the school walls. It was a very wrong choice to make. But since then, we've been drifting farther and farther away from God. And our government, which was have every single member of the government has placed their hand on the Bible and said, I swear to uphold the Constitution to the best of my ability. And then they go right about and try to nullify and destroy what the Constitution stands for. Mm-hmm. Willingly and openly now. It used to be done subtly, but now they're just blatantly doing it. And that's a crime... In my opinion, that 
you swore to defend it, but you're violating it. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are those um, amendments that were adequately put in there for just reasons. And we amended them, but now they're trying to take advantage of some of those amendments. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of people get mis- uh, misinformation. Yeah. Yeah, the, the checks and balances system, even at a personal level, um, not necessarily just on a governmental level, has just failed us. Yeah. Because people are not people of conviction anymore unless the conviction serves them. Or they can get some kind of payoff yeah. to represent a certain type of conviction regardless of how they feel about it. And that's what it is. It's it's politics of self nowadays. You know, it's it's identity politics. Yeah. And, you know, how many people support, you know, like alternate lifestyles that themselves don't even agree with it? Mm -hmm. They're just kind of jumping on the bandwagon of support because it's trending. And it's the cool thing to do. And that's where it's just like I cannot stand people that just jump on a bandwagon. It's like, have you done your research on this yet? Do your research Watch what they stand for, because sooner or later, the truth will come out about them. And without naming names, there are certain organizations that everyone jumped on board with. And then when you look a little closer, you're seeing, wait a second, they're not doing what they said they're going to do. The same thing that has been happening for 50 years is still happening with no sign of slowing down. Yeah. Except more crime going up. Right. And, you know, we also have to keep in mind just to kind of, you know, bring this back to the whole, like, time of the end. Yeah. You know, prophetic context. Yeah. Uh, Scripture warns us that this will happen. Yep. The time of the end. Uh, once again, we're all flawed individuals, but as long as we're striving to appeal to the God of truth by the spirit of truth, that's the safeguard that we have. But we are warned all through Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, not just in the book of Revelation, but even in Matthew 24, uh, Luke 21, Mark 13, it talks about what the end of the age will look like. And it looks like a lot of bad politics, a lot of bad weather systems and patterns just increasing, a lot of volcanism and earthquakes and just, you know, the earth itself is like groaning. Mm-hmm. You know, creation itself is crying out because it's it's falling apart. Mm-hmm. And the system is broken, not just the world system, but political systems, um, you know, institutional systems people ourselves we're broken that's why we need christ so when we look around at what's going on in this country yeah you don't want it to be so bad right and on certain levels it doesn't have to be so bad but then again why are there so many people that are just throwing morality to the wind Mm -hmm. you know it's the spirit of antichrist yeah it is not saying it's the antichrist it's the spirit of antichrist it's an anti-christian demonic spirit that is infiltrating the world and anyone who's open to it and that's all over scripture too and so that's what we see on display and you know one of the things to look at is for instance just for example politics there's two main sides of politics but there's all kinds of different 
views throughout the whole spectrum from one end to the other. But what's the foundation of any particular view? You know, is it truth or untruth? And there's a spiritual foundation to truth and untruth. But what side of the spiritual spectrum is untruth or truth on? Mm-hmm. And that's where you'll find your answer. And yeah. too many people, I know I've said this before to you, and, and uh, this often comes up in teaching at some point, but too many people argue and fret and worry within the political spectrum, but don't get anywhere. Right. It, emotions get heightened, and they don't really make progress one way or another. They may have convictions and know where they stand, but to really find out where you stand, look below the political spectrum into yeah. the spiritual spectrum. Yeah. And that's you know where you'll find truth or untruth. And some of us may have to course correct when we start to really self-examine and then appeal to the Spirit of God to help us understand where are we at? Why do we get so upset? Why do we feel so frustrated with things or with people? You know, that's going to happen to all of us at some time or another. But really, some people just, they're not sure where they stand. Mm-hmm. And it's because probably there's something off in their spirit as opposed to just operating out of their emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, how they feel. Well, what about the people who don't want to voice their opinion? And they're like... Just let it blow on by. I want to just stay where I'm at. Like, duck down and let it happen all above them. What what it, encouragement or advice would you give them of not necessarily choosing a side, but just being like, being mindful? Yeah, well, that that's kind of a too broad of a question because it's going to come down to Knowing who that person is. Mm-hmm. What's your relationship to that person? What do you know of them? What is their background of life? Yeah. You know, how have their worldviews and their current thoughts been shaped, you know, based on what do they think? If they don't want to get involved and they don't want to stay even what their opinion is and they they claim neutrality, that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's their opinion. Right. That's their right to do that. You know, I don't necessarily have to, just because someone asks me questions... You know, and wants to know where I stand. I don't have to answer them, right. especially if I know they're just looking for a particular answer right. and they just want to argue or debate. Right. I'm not going to fall into that because you know, unless it's going to be constructive. Right. So it just depends on the person and where they're at, where they're coming from. The context. I mean, I would always say just like look to scripture first, and then you'll find your truth. Okay, so in that case, you're talking about how best should we encourage someone to really find the most solid foundation? Yeah. For where they stand concerning anything in life, mm-hmm. worldview, political worldview, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, you want to start with scripture. Yeah. You know, of course, you know, if you have someone who is a non Christian or an atheist or an agnostic, scripture's not going to fly for them. Right. And that's fine because we shouldn't try to shove that down their throat. Right. We should just encourage them to, you know, well, what is your, you know, truth standard mm-hmm. in this world if not scripture? And then you have to go from there based on what they say. Yeah. We can't necessarily assume that they're just wrong. So that's that's part of what dialogue is all about. Yeah. We, we listen to people. We hear where they're coming from. And we try not to prejudge, at least harshly. And we give them a fair hearing. And then hopefully they'll do the same for us. Right. Yeah, that's good. So in the United States, we have capitalism as 
our predominant form of government. And we are we're still seeing several countries being run by socialism and or communism. And these countries' governments hate the West with a passion. They hate the ideas of capitalism. And yet those same countries, all we see coming out of them, are death, poverty, and misery. So what makes capitalism work, in your opinion, as opposed to the ideas of socialism? Well, really, capitalism kind of thrives off of the aspect of free enterprise, you know, where once again, you know, in, in our nation, you know, a constitutional republic that guarantees free, you know, by design anyway, freedoms for the individual. And capitalism, of course, it's not so much governance. It's, it's the economic aspect mm-hmm. that, that we have here. Right. And capitalism allows for free enterprise. It allows for people to make a profit yep. and with, with no end. Yep. And that's fine. It's just the problem is is when someone is so successful in the same nation where there's someone who's not successful at all, even if they try. And then people say that's not fair. Well, what's not fair about it? Just because someone makes money and someone doesn't? I mean, it really comes down to, once again, how someone feels about a situation. And oftentimes, non-capitalistic you know, uh, systems kind of try to level the playing field. And on some levels, that might work, but it usually goes awry somewhere. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not going to you know, edify capitalism as the right. perfect end-all, right. be-all thing. You know, um, it just happens to work a lot better than how socialism works. In I mean, most cases, yeah. I mean, one of the best examples is Venezuela. Mm-hmm. They were a thriving country in South America, what, just 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. And then they decided to adopt socialistic views, and now they're one of the most impoverished countries yeah. in the world. And it's devastating to see that happen in less than 30 years. Mm-hmm. And every single time it's tried, we see nothing but that happen. Mm-hmm. So that's just the mind-boggling aspect of why do some of our politicians say, that's what we need to do. It's like, do you guys not do your own research? Yeah. And then you realize when you look at how they speak, yeah, yeah they, they haven't done their own research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Once again, it usually comes down to, you know, the personal politics. You know, people in power decide they know better than anyone else. And most of the time, those people are not submitting themselves to a higher power. Right. Namely God, the Christian God. And so they themselves see themselves as God, even if it's on a subtle subconscious level. They know best. And sometimes, you know, people genuinely have a well-meaning kind of bent towards that but ultimately you know power corrupts absolutely yeah and so that's kind of what we see going on in in most of those countries and even here in our country and without making it political it ultimately is personal because politics is you know driven by people and once again people are flawed and if people don't submit themselves to a very gracious and loving all-powerful god then really the purposes of man go astray. Mm-hmm. And, it, I mean, even, gosh, even capitalism. 
can corrupt people. Oh, yeah. Because people can make so much, and then they get full of themselves, and yep. then they misappropriate their their wealth, and it changes people <laughs> they, that they, are very they become, humble to people that are very prideful. They become greedy misers. Exactly. Like uh, Mr. Krabs. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, we are seeing unfolding before our eyes the invasion of Ukraine by Russia under the leadership of Vladimir Putin. And he's been dancing around the issue of deciding if he's going to invade for two to three weeks now. He's been like, yeah, no, speeding up and then backing down. And then a couple of days ago, he annexed two portions to like, I guess you could call them districts of Ukraine saying they wanted to be back part of Russia. And then Wednesday night, our time, so that was uh, the 24th, their time, he launches massive invasion, land, sea, air, everything. And everyday Ukrainians are all of a sudden being bombarded. They're being thrown into bomb shelters. They're seeing their loved ones killed and everything. Um, What is your initial takeaway, but more importantly, how much of an impact do you see this having in a spiritual context? Well, on a general, everyday, worldly, political perspective, it's bad news, of course. Um, I was surprised that so many people were surprised Mm -hmm. that Putin actually invaded. Yeah. I was 99% sure that he would Mm -hmm. back in October. I mean, he had been building up this invasion force for months. Yeah. Since last, like, October. Yeah. He knew he was going to invade however long ago. He just started to implement the steps, hoping, most likely, stated by Putin himself, he didn't want violence. Mm-hmm. He was no doubt hoping, because he wants to just reabsorb Ukrainian territory back into Mother Russia. Right. He doesn't want to enact a scorched earth policy because he wants Ukraine to be a part of Russia, a thriving part of Russia. He openly said publicly to Russia and the world that he did not want loss of life. He did not want destruction of property. But he was willing to do that if they were going to resist. And, well, here we are. Mm -hmm. The West came up against him. There's a lot of mismanaged opportunities to try to... I've I've never seen anything like a country invading another country. We're just going to slap sanctions on you and that's going to work. I mean, if you look at history, I was just listening to this today. They tried doing that with um, Hitler during World War II. They slapped sanctions on him. That didn't stop him. He invaded Poland, Czechoslovakia, which is now Czech Republic and Slovakia. Mm-hmm. Um, he invaded France. It, like he took over the entire continent, pretty much. Now Putin's not that far yet. There's concerns that he might try to go after some of the other countries, in, including those in NATO, which was formed after World War II. Do you think NATO will step in? No. I don't, I, don't, I don't think so either. One of Putin's goals is to delegitimize NATO. He's going after Ukraine because it's a large territory. He wants it. 
So he's got a purpose. But there's a long game at play here. Yeah. Um, Ukraine is not a NATO nation. Right. So there's no obligation for NATO nations to come to Ukraine's defense, which is part of the sensitive politics that, you know, I mean, Putin knows what he's doing. For anyone that knows Putin's history, he's a warrior. Yeah. He's not an imbecile. He's not just a tyrant. He is, you know, people would say ex-KGB. But once you're in the KGB, you're always KGB. So he is KGB. He's surrounded by I mean, his advisors. A lot of the people in the Kremlin are actually KGB. So these are warriors, and they're looking back to the glory days, not just of the Soviet Empire in particular, but just Mother Russia, the Russian Empire, more of a czaristic perspective. And this is how Putin fancies himself, as a czar. Yeah, because a lot of people think he's wanting to bring back the USSR, which was the communist yeah, no, dictatorship. No, no, I mean, he he knows. I mean, he, he does not agree with communism as the Soviet Republic was. Mm-hmm. He is all for what he is now. He's an autocrat mm-hmm. and an oligarch. So he's all about free enterprise, which is a form of capitalism over there. But it's really it's an autocracy and an oligarchy. You've got all these heads of these great big companies, oil companies, gas companies, tech companies or whatever, that really bring a lot of money in and infrastructure and you know just technology. What a thriving country needs. Russia, on a lot of levels, is very successful. Mm -hmm. And you can go to Russia and have a lot of freedoms. I mean, the main freedom that you lack is to really speak out against the government vehemently. Yeah. Yeah. And then you might find yourself imprisoned or, you know, dead. But there's general freedoms there. I mean, there's a lot of Western companies that go there and thrive. And there's, you know, it's not like Big Brother is there. It's it's even, some aspects, there's more freedom there than here. Mm Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's not an ideal situation, right. especially now as Putin starts to like tighten the noose. And that's also going to be for the Russian people in yeah. general, who are not in support of what he's doing. That needs to be stated. Yes. The, the Russian people in general, the general populace, is now coming out and protesting. They were themselves surprised that Putin actually did this. They thought he was just flexing his muscles, much ado about nothing. But now they realize, whoa, this guy is crazy. You know, they understand there's been a lot of rigging of the elections in the past decade or more, and he's pretty much left them alone to their own devices. But now, because of this, a lot of people are looking at Russia and wondering what in the world is going on. And so the people of Russia don't want the rest of the world to see them as being siding with Putin, right? With their corrupt leader now. So now that they're speaking out, sadly. The Russian government, or I should say the military infrastructure, is starting to arrest all these protesters and putting really strict restrictions on them. Primarily, the last I heard was, if you want to protest, you can only protest as an individual and not in groups. Otherwise, you'll be arrested or disappear. So it's very interesting developments. Russia is very keen on making people disappear. Yes. I mean, they don't have Siberia for nothing, folks. yeah, yeah, Yeah. There's a lot of things that... People think have gone away that haven't gone away. The way the old ways of doing things. Right. It's just not as in the public eye. But Putin's grander design goes beyond Ukraine. And there's so much, no matter how many articles we can read and information we can get, you know, not just on the internet, but through history and keep an eye on Putin, mainly listen to what he says. Mm-hmm. And he's not just bluster, he yeah. means it. Uh, he caught so many people off guard. Experts, supposed experts that were surprised that he invaded, but 
this is just history repeating itself. Right. You know, once he started moving field hospitals into the theater of war, a lot of people started to, to perk up and say, wait a second, you don't move field hospital units into play unless you're actually going right. to go through with an invasion and expect casualties. It's just like all the signs are there. Yes. And I'm sure that a lot of people in Ukraine saw the signs and started preparing a while ago. They did. And there were a lot of, before it started making the news cycle, now a lot of articles are coming back. Ukrainians themselves are saying how disappointed they are, not just in the United States, but all Western nations and the world in general, because they have been warning that this was a strong possibility for months. I'd say even years. I mean, we saw it happen back in 2014. Right. I mean, there was... A subtle invasion. The Russia took over Crimea, which is technically part of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing a video back then of, I think, a girl in her 20s or something. Like, folks, are you not seeing what's going on here? This is still happening. Mm-hmm. But we are so focused on what the media tells us. And this goes on both sides of the aisle. So left wing, right wing, whatever side you're on. Both sides will eventually drop the subject and focus on something else. Some things are important. Some things are not important. But the big stories will eventually drop out of circulation and then people forget about it. Because we are so wrapped up in our own little worlds. And this goes worldwide. This is not just the United States. But that's the real shame of we just follow along with what the media tells us. Yeah, well... uh... For better or worse, and I think it's for better, despite the situation, in following what's going on, most of the media that I'm looking at is, of course, European, you know, Middle Eastern, Australian, Israeli media. And the media over there, the entire world of the in the Eastern Hemisphere is very concerned mm-hmm. about Putin's long game. Yeah. More so than over here. Yeah. At least according to news outlets. So I'm glad that the Eastern Hemisphere people are really looking they're, out They're for, waking up a little bit. Exactly. And starting to consider how can we actually pull together and what can we actually do? And that's kind of the big question. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the bigger powers in the West aren't really coming to not just Ukraine, but anyone else's like defense. Right. Now, there's still some... Positive developments. Uh, one that's kind of scary but necessary is Israel kind of um, breaking their tentative peace with Russia to support appeals from Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania, Baltic states that are NATO nations mm-hmm. that don't have any standing army of their own. They primarily only have law enforcement. They don't really have any kind of defense. I mean, they're small countries. If you look at a map, they're all three right next to each other, right yeah, on the border like, with They're Russia. more or less like stacked. Right? Yes. Yeah, right to the north of Ukraine and Belarus, uh, but still on the border with Russia. They are very much afraid that they're next. Once Russia consolidates Ukraine, they'll turn to the Baltic states. This is a part of what Putin's long game is. He wants to delegitimize NATO. Mm-hmm. No one's doing anything about Ukraine, basically. So then if he goes after a NATO state, United States has already come out and said we're not going to come to the Baltic states' defense militarily. We, like we're doing now, we may give them some ammunition or whatever and support generally, but not through personnel. We're not going to actively fight Russia, boots on the ground, right. because that would 
it possibly you know introduce a world war. But either way, they're afraid that Russia's coming after them next. So they appealed to Israel for the Iron Dome, you know, anti-missile defense system, and Israel has agreed. And Iron Dome, for those who may not know, is something that Israel knows all too well because Hamas and Hezbollah and all them fire rockets and missiles into Israel on a daily basis. And Iron Dome is like an interceptor type defense system where it shoots another missile to break them down. Yes, yes. It's been successfully deployed uh, for several years now in Israel against Hamas and Hezbollah's you know, rocket attacks. Yeah. Um, it's not foolproof and can be easily overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. For instance, if in Hezbollah, Israel's you know Iranian enemy on their northern border, and Hamas both have boasted that now they have hundreds of thousands of missiles. And instead of just launching sorties of scores or hundreds of missiles, if they were to launch thousands simultaneously, the Iron Dome system would clearly be overrun. Right. And that would spell the end for Israel. So, so this, to speak. Yes. So this is one of those things that it, it's a tactic that Israel is very much concerned about. Yeah. Uh, but everybody knows about it. And it's, it's a very weak flaw that's unintentional. It's just by default. You can't yeah. employ enough Iron Dome systems to wipe out 100,000 or more rockets that could be fired simultaneously. Right. The question is, is Hamas or Hezbollah or Iran willing to launch that many missiles at the same time? Right. Eventually, I believe they will be <laughs> willing to do that. So Israel knows this is a possibility, and that's kind of the and impasse. even with that knowledge, they're still willing to share what they have with the Baltic states. Absolutely. And so this is because Israel's had a tentative peace with Russia for years and years. Because of this, Israel was kind of avoiding coming out in opposition directly to Russia in defense of Ukraine. But when there were 200,000 Jews in Ukraine, Israel put out the appeal that Jews fleeing Ukraine are welcome to come to Israel. They weren't going to bar them from coming Mm -hmm. into their homeland. But with the invasion already starting, it's almost impossible for anybody in Ukraine to get out. Yeah, I mean, I saw just a picture of traffic trying to leave the country. Yeah, airports are bombed or shut down. There's There's no rail traffic. Um, and what's heartbreaking is also you see the fact that Ukrainians who are not soldiers are kissing their loved ones goodbye, not knowing if they're ever going to see them again. Yes. They're like, I have to go fight now. I don't know how to fight, but I'm going to fight. Yeah. Um, like I said, I I personally, I don't see Ukraine lasting. Yeah. I think Russia is just too strong. It's too much of a mindset to attack. Now, Ukraine's putting up one heck of a fight, and I don't think Putin was expecting as much of a fight as he's getting. Mm -hmm. But he is going to just outpower them eventually. And Ukraine, as it exists now, will cease, and it'll become more or less a puppet state. Yes. And that is a travesty. I still don't think that it's going to result in world war yet. It's a lead up to it. Yeah. In a way, it's very similar because when Hitler invaded Poland, that was the start of World War II. Because France and Britain had signed a peace treaty with Poland because they knew this is bound to happen. We're going to 
go to war over this. But he subtly invaded Czechoslovakia. And nobody did a thing. He subtly invaded Austria. And nobody did a thing. That's a little less than what Putin has done with Ukraine. But he has moved in. He's going to take it over. And we'll see what the rest of the world does. And that's Putin's goal. Yep. He, his eyes are after Ukraine. His eyes are on three Baltic states of Estonia, Lithuania. Because Belarus Latvia. is more or less allied with him. Belarus, yeah. They were a puppet state, but they've completely allied with him now. Yeah. But after those three Baltic states that are small, they may not be who he goes after next. He's also got his eyes on the Czech Republic and Romania. Mm-hmm. He may take full occupation of Georgia. I mean, Georgia's yeah. a puppet state, too. Yeah. Is there any knowledge if he might go after Turkey or anything? Well, Turkey's allied with Russia. Oh, okay. So, I mean, you know, that that factors into Bible prophecy even. Right. But Turkey is an ally of Russia. And so Russia's not going to dominate Turkey. Right. You know, but uh, Russia's already in Syria. Mm -hmm. And they've been in Syria for a long time. At least since 2015. Yes. And unofficially, but in reality, Syria... Is a Russian state. Yeah. Because they've got over 30 naval vessels in the Mediterranean. Yeah, and it over was the like port something the like um, they rushed in to help Bashar al-Assad's dictatorship survive. And then when that ended, they're like, yeah, we're going to stay. Yeah. Because the United States pulled out of Iraq and Syria for the most part. Russia came in and just took over the airfields that we left behind. Yep. And has established their own. As a matter of fact, they've moved long-range bombers and fighter bombers equipped with nuclear hypersonic missiles into Syria. And a lot of people are, Putin, what's going on? What are you doing this for? Oh, we're just war gaming. Well, that's what he said when he first started mobilizing troops towards Ukraine. Right. It's just an excuse. Nothing to see here while he mobilizes his forces and establishes himself so that he can threaten anyone in the and, world. Well, actually, he hasn't just... That's not just a saying. He actually did threaten. Yes. On the night of the invasion or the morning of the invasion, he threatened every single NATO country, like, don't get involved. Yes. Or you will face repercussions the likes of which you've never seen before. And honestly, that's why he mobilized the nuclear bombers. And put them in... The port of Syria, or it's like in the that region, because it's like um, centrally located. It's like they can go to any modern day capital and basically liquefy it. Mm-hmm. And that's scary to think that he's that capable. But it's also scary to think that we let him right. get to those positions yes. without even blinking. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, well. We have only ourselves to blame. But there is a reason all of this is happening beyond the will of Putin and the lack of will of Western nations to stand against him. It all falls into things that have already been prophesied prophesied. thousands of years ago. And yes. And And some people will have a hard time kind of swallowing that without getting into it. But there's, there's always... A way to understand things. Yeah. The only thing we don't really fully understand, and this is coming out of Ezekiel 38 and 39 in the Old Testament, is the exact time frame Yeah. of how long or how quickly things will unfold. But there's been a slow build for years, 
and then all of a sudden things are happening quick. Mm-hmm. And I believe they'll continue to happen quick. But again, we don't have a clear indication of exactly how fast things can unfold. But keep an eye on what Putin's going to do after Ukraine. And then, of course, what China's going to do about Taiwan. Yep. And what North Korea may do about South Korea. And what Hezbollah, Hamas, and Iran may do against Israel. Right. Could all this stuff unleash simultaneously? It could. Is it just people waiting to see how much Putin gets away with before then China, who's the big dog, who is actually supporting Russia and all this, then decides to move and then gives the okay for North Korea and or Iran to go ahead and to do whatever they want to do because no one's going to stop them? I mean, we're looking at world-changing scenarios here. And if not World War III, it's definitely a still very serious war-driven circumstance that's mm-hmm. going to change, well, the world as we know it, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. And that's the uh, the scary thing. And again, all these sanctions, honestly, don't mean anything because, for example, Russia has publicly supported, about a month ago, Russia's endeavor here. Russia and China publicly entered into agreements, yep. not so much treaties, but agreements as to what to do with Ukraine once Russia takes care of it. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, Iran, still under consideration about, and still under some sanctions, some sanctions against Iran have lifted, but there's still others that have been put in place, and there's more threatening to be put in place. Well, Iran doesn't care, because China, to kind of like, help them not worry about it, just gave them $400 billion. Yeah. And Russia or China will do the same thing to Russia. Hey, don't worry about the sanctions. You know, yeah, whatever you uh, need, and we're that, here for you. See, that? that's when they're like, we're slapping sanctions down on you. Like, yeah. Russia does not mm-hmm. care about sanctions because they're not taking money from you necessarily. Yeah. They're hurting you a little bit. But this, they're not worried enough to be like, Oh, we're going to stop invading. No, they're going to keep on invading. They've gone too far. And that's why it's just very important that we don't isolate ourselves to one media outlet and assume that's all that's going on. Right. And at the same time, pay very close attention to what Putin himself is saying, not just what people are saying he's saying. Because he's very telling when he offered his history of Russia, particularly from 1922 up until the present. We see him doing exactly what he said he would do, but he gives the reason for doing it. And it's simply to gain territory and then justify himself doing it by finagling history and opinion. You you know, that's actually one thing that I read recently, and this shocked me, was the fact that 20 years ago, Russians had a very negative view of Stalin. Current day, he's got a 70% approval rating in the minds of Russians. The, a man who literally murdered millions of his own people has it a high approval rating? That is where his Putin's views of twist the narrative, like you just said, mm-hmm. have been coming into show. And I doubt anyone has ever heard or considered those things happening. Yeah. It's, it's very telling when you look at what people are actually doing for instance what you just mentioned with putin and the russian government in general really creating a sense of nationalism yeah by appealing to their history and twisting it ever so slightly to something that's good Mm -hmm. turkey is doing the same thing for the past nearly a decade now maybe a little more 
they've really begun to advertise what's called Ottomania. And of course, Turkey is the remnants of the former Ottoman Empire that ended with the end of World War I. But the Ottoman Empire was lasted for centuries. Yeah. And now they're trying to go back to their roots and not so much revive the Ottoman Empire as it was, but really kind of find a nationalistic sense to put Turkey kind of on the map as a tourist destination and to celebrate their Muslim identity. There's just a lot of this trying to recapture the glory days of empire and a lot of these countries over in Eurasia. Mm-hmm. And that itself is just evidence of things that have been prophesied yeah. deep in the Old Testament and that are alluded to in the New Testament that is now coming to pass. Because we, honestly, we are in the latter years when it comes to end times Bible yeah. prophecy in particular. And that's, it's exciting times, but it's sad because so many people will be caught in the crossfire. Yeah. Like now with Ukraine. Yeah. Both of us are unashamedly very critical of the current presidential administration in the United States. It's unfortunate that they're more or less just standing by doing nothing. Yes. Now, is it our fight? No. But the fact that we're just like, oh, this is what's happening. Yeah, we're not going to worry about it too much. We're Sanction you, sanction... They don't mean nothing. Right. And... A lot of people are starting to see how incompetent this administration is dating back to the end of August 2021 when we got out of Afghanistan in a disastrous type of way. Everyone since then has like had their eyes open like this is bad on every level. So it's like I said, unfortunate that we have the this current administration in effect, but as I always say, God's in control. He knows what he's doing. It just makes you wonder and everything. Yeah. Well, some people would be, you know, even whether it's listening to us or just still watching the news cycle um, and even doing their due diligence to really strive to understand what's going on and then feel helpless. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel helpless. What can I really do? Right. But as Christians, what we can do at the very least, but it's also at the very most, is pray. Yep. And not just pray. For the people in Ukraine, but pray for uh, the administration in the United States. Yeah, pray for Putin himself to have a heart change to realize that he's going down a bad path. I mean, that might be, sound like a tall order. Yeah, but I mean, God can do anything, and we don't know exactly what's going to happen. And even though certain things are prophesied, and God will bring certain things to pass, what we still can pray is, Lord, Your will be done. Yeah, but protect the innocent and. If it's possible, if it is in your will, change the hearts of some of these leaders. You know, the ones that are on a rampage, the ones that are lost in madness and, yeah. and that are power hungry. But at the same time, you know, give wisdom to the leaders of America as well to either course correct or actually do more that would actually do some help and do some good. So really our prayers as, as Christians towards the leaders of not only our nation, but the leaders of other nations, not to mention the innocent people caught in the crossfire. And pray for the Jews. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem because yeah. their attention, negative attention, is starting to turn their way. And again, that's prophesied. But let's still pray for peace and protection and that God would do what he needs to do to bring things to a head quickly, to protect as many people as possible. And honestly, that's that's the only way we're going to find peace about it. Mm-hmm. is 
try to figure out if there's anything we can do beyond prayer, then do it. Mm-hmm. But at the very least and very most, pray about it. Yeah. And pray for just wisdom to prevail all the way around. Yeah. I mean, like you said, that's most important thing and in some cases the only thing we can do. Yes. Um, so no, we've been talking a while and going to wrap things up here in a few minutes. Um, what's an inspirational quote that, that you may have for the audience or maybe a Bible verse that has stood out in your mind that you would be willing to share with them? Uh, I can start with a quote. Um, it's a simple quote. Leonardo da Vinci said, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And I don't live up to that, but it's something I strive toward. Simplicity. Try not to let your life get too complicated. Especially try not to let your mind and your emotions get too complicated that you can't think for yourself. Mm -hmm. And each of us has a responsibility when we're teaching or even sharing our opinions with others to remain neutral and not try to, especially when we're instructing people, even instructing them in righteousness, we should never try to tell people what to think. We should simply share our thoughts, opinions, be honest about those opinions, be willing to listen to the other side, the other person that we're engaging with, and help them, if they want, to think for themselves. Mm -hmm. Again, never to tell them what to think and to keep things simple for ourselves. Um, Life is complicated enough as it is, (laughs) but to strive toward that. But then going back to Scripture... Revelation 19.10 says, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Once again, that's found in Revelation, but doesn't necessarily have to do with just the end times or the end of the age. The testimony of Jesus is everything that Jesus said, everything he stood for, everything he is. The identity of Christ is the spirit of prophecy. What is prophecy? Once again, prophecy is the entire word and counsel of God from beginning to end, even pre-existing the entire created universe. It goes back to the eternality of God. So, being that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, everything in the Word of God is prophetic. And yes, being in the end of time now, approaching the end of the age very swiftly, that has a lot more contexts and nuances within those contexts to help us understand that Jesus is still in control. And that's kind of what I take from it, is that Jesus is in control of it all, He's there in Revelation. He has specific messages to the first century church that are no less fresh today. His message is still the same. It's look to him, and we put our hope in him, our faith in him, and we'll be okay. Doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. Doesn't mean that we're not going to have hard times, but we'll be okay in the long run. Mm -hmm. We put our faith in him and not in our circumstances or even in ourselves. Right. Or in the government or exactly. in the country. Exactly. Put your faith in God and he will see you through. Somehow, some way, he will always see you through. Yes. Well, thank you for coming on to the show. It was Absolutely. A great, Hunter. great conversation. Uh, look forward to always having more yeah. in the future. We can always be long-winded. <laughs> and that will do it for this episode of the snowman podcast i would like to thank john for coming on to the show i greatly enjoyed our conversation and i hope you did as well and hope that you thought about some things that you hadn't considered before 
I hope to have him on the program again in the future for another great conversation. If you would like to know more about him and or how to find out how to purchase a copy of his commentary on Revelation, just visit his website, www.johnbirch.com, and there you will see a link to purchase it on Amazon. Also, on his website, you can read different blogs he's written over the years, all focusing on discipleship. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave a five-star review so as to make it easier for others to find the podcast as well. Please also share with your family and friends. I'm available on iTunes, Spotify, Reason.fm, and YouTube. Or, as I always say, just tell them to type in the Snowman Podcast and look for an American flag with a snowman in the foreground. Till next time, this is Snowman, and I'll see you now, yeah? So, how do you make the number one disappear? I do not know. You add a G to it, and it's gone. Oh, my gracious. (laughs) (laughs) Have you got a better one? Very good. No.